If you have your Bibles, won't you please open up to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to be reading from verse 1 to 6 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. We're continuing from last week's uh, sermon where we're looking at false teaching. And uh, I used the example last week of that prophet of doom. Everybody know what the prophet of doom was? The, the guy claiming to be a, a prophet of Christ and asking his followers to be sprayed with doom, the insecticide, to rid of his congregants, the demonic and, and uh, sickness. And so... Very real for us at this time. Let's read together from verse 1, chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Last week, we said that Paul arms Timothy with four things in how he is to face false teaching. For those of you who went to last week, very briefly, the first ones, we are to be a people sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Notice it is the Spirit that expressly says. It's not some academic doctor or some great intellect. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to lead the church into truth. And we said last week, we have to be careful because we could misunderstand that if we don't realize when we grieve the Spirit, we become blind to truth, we can live in a way with His absence. And we said that being sensitive to the Holy Spirit is the first part to being sensitive to truth because it is the work of the Spirit that leads us into truth. And we need to be a people both of the life of the Spirit. In other words, we want the Spirit's empowering in our daily lives to live for Jesus. We need His empowering to lead us into truth, but we also want the light of the Spirit. And the two always come together. A true mark of God's work by the Spirit is when there is the power of the Holy Spirit and the clarity of His Word. And we need both to be active in our lives if we are going to come into the fullness of this abundant life that Jesus has for us. And remember, the fullness comes by the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And it comes by the Spirit applying the truth personally to your life and mine. It's the truth that sets us free, right? So we're engaging with the Spirit. A life that is dead to the Spirit is a life that is called to truth. Secondly is we are to expect and be ready for it. Notice Paul says expressly, the Spirit says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And the second the gospel hit the ground, man, there were false teachers rising up in the church trying to steer her away from the gospel. And uh, from that moment, Paul says we must be ready. The second you leave these doors, you'll be exposed to a whole range 
of knowledge and teachers asserting themselves to be true. And just because it's successful that some depart doesn't mean it's right. Thirdly, we are to be assessors of character. We said what motivated these false teachers was their selfish ambition. And so when you watch a false teacher at work, inevitably it leads to the ego. You have to give to my ministry to be blessed. I have the secret anointing. It's when I spray doom on you that you are healed. It is the pyrotechnics of the suits and the helicopter. It is the status of money and wealth. When it's all wrapped up, when the person becomes bigger than Christ, beware. Because it is an inner motivation that led the devil, Lucifer, the the great angel of heaven, to set himself up against God. It was selfish ambition. And secondly, even more devastating was that these teachers were out of reach, these false teachers. Their consciences were seared. And we said last week, the Christian must always be sensitive to conscience. When the whistle blows, the game stops. Even if you don't agree with conscience, because we said that not everybody's conscience is perfect. Some of us have weak consciences like myself. That whistle goes off every second of every hour, virtually of every day. Some of us have stronger consciences, but we are to stop. And if we don't agree with the ref, we appeal to the third umpire, which is the word of God. Our consciences, which we're going to touch on again briefly later on in the sermon, must be released by truth. If you don't have a freedom to do something or believe something, your conscience is saying, no, don't do it. Because these gentlemen and ladies were learning to play on the field without a ref. Their consciences were seared. And fourthly, we are to be assessors, not only of character, but content. And that's what I want to speak about this morning. And in unpacking this fourth point, I want to answer three questions. Firstly, why assessing content is the most important of all. When you are looking at a teacher, content trumps everything. The second question I want to answer is, what is the content by which we assess? And thirdly, why is the content of what we believe still important today? Right. You ready? Gosh, you ready? Great. Here we go. Why is assessing content the most important of all? Well, the first is this is that sometimes character only comes out later. And one of the problems that the church has is the nice guy syndrome. A teacher comes and they seem so humble. They seem so giving. Their demeanor, it seems to be so gentle and soft. And um, we, at first glance, think that they are godly. But Paul warns Timothy, he says in chapter 5, verse 24 of 1 Timothy, the sins of some people are conspicuous. You can see them right now going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. And sometimes the start of a ministry of a false teacher can be very persuading because they seem so godly. They'll talk about their relationship with God. They'll talk about how close they are to the Holy Spirit. They'll talk about how much revelation they had from God's Word that morning. They'll talk about how godly they are. And at first glance, they seem like a nice guy, a nice person. I wonder if any of you ever come across that before. Ah, but Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Sterling Baptist, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Even if this man or woman comes in the radiant light as of an angel, you are not to believe them if they preach anything other than the gospel. 
just because a person seems to be nice doesn't mean they're sound. Secondly is signs and wonders are not a sign of soundness. I want to say to you this morning that false teachers have supernatural power. They are following the doctrine of demons. They are being influenced and empowered by a supernatural force that is not the Holy Spirit. And it is possible for signs and wonders to be happening in the room and the person to be false. And the, the example that comes to mind here is Acts chapter 16, verse 16 to 18, where Paul, going to a place of prayer, met a slave girl that had a spirit of divination. Hectic. She earned money by people coming to her owners and paying the owners, and she would sit and have insight into glimpses of people's futures. And I want to say, I would not be surprised this morning if that prophet of doom did see some healings. I really wouldn't. I would not be surprised if a false prophet stands up and is able to know some of Ali's history. I would not be surprised if someone is able to predict one or two events in the future that come right, because there are operating under the supernatural, but it's not the Holy Spirit. And Sterling Baptist, the second reason why we have to be assessors of content is this, is because a man might have supernatural power and still be false. He might be even able to heal your leg. He might be even able to do some miraculous prophecy or sign, but what he or she is measured by is not the spiritual power, it is the spiritual content. Thirdly is this is that Scripture can be twisted to support false teaching. And this is the hardest of the lot. And on eldership, from time to time, we have to address things placed before us, teachings that are happening in our city, whether it is on various factors, the law, health, a bunch of things. And the hardest ones are those teachers who claim that their teaching comes from Scripture. And I would say the church is tempted in two ways, and you will be tempted in two ways, depending on your personality. If you want the hunger for the supernatural of God in your life, that's how you're going to be tempted. If you want to see the manifestation of the Spirit's life and power, which is good and right, we want to see a church whose mark is the presence of God upon her. And let me tell you, when Jesus rocks up, the supernatural is evidence. But if that's you this morning, you come from me, from a charismatic background, where we want to see the life of the Spirit penetrating the church and having a close, powerful revelation of Jesus amidst her, in the midst of her, that's the way you'll be tempted. And that's why you have people being willing to be sprayed with doom, is because they want the supernatural without the Word, that the neglect of God's Word. They are willing to go for anything if it will give them a bit of the Spirit's power. Ah, but I would say, as good Baptists this morning, our temptation is this, that we want to be people of the book. That is our heritage. And so if you study theology, I did four years where they hammer you on exegesis, exegesis, exegesis. I didn't hear very much about the Holy Spirit, but the Word of God, wow. Word of God, start to finish. But the temptation is this is that these deceitful spirits come to people who desire to be true to the Word of God by twisting the Word of God. And this is exactly what these false teachers in Timothy were doing. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7, they desire to be teachers of the law. 
when they were coming to the churches in Ephesus, they were expounding the Old Testament. They were coming and saying, our revelation, Church of Ephesus, our revelation, SBC, is right because we can get it from the Word of God. They wanted to be seen as teachers of the law. However, Paul says this about them in verse 7. They were without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, this is what happens. And this is a textbook case of false teaching. He says they devoted themselves to myths. Now, a myth is something invented in the brain of the human who thought of it. It has got no anchor in history. You might have heard of the Greek gods, right? It's quite prominent mythology at the moment. You watch some of the series that are on. The Greeks invented a myth to explain their creation. A myth is taking something completely without any historical context. And what these men were doing is they were standing up in front of the church and saying, you've got to listen to us because we have proof from the Old Testament. And what they were doing is this. They were taking Old Testament stories and applying mythological meaning to it. They did violence to the historical context of the text. Church, you've got to know this morning that Scripture must always be taken in the context for whom it was originally written for. And all of these weird interpretations of revelations, these weird interpretations of the law, once you get down to the nitty-gritty, once you get down to the context in which that was written in the time frame, in the historical framework, it becomes evident that these people are inventing their meanings of Scripture. Secondly, not only that, is they were using weird texts in Scripture called genealogies. They were literally devoting themselves to endless genealogies. You know what they were doing? They were saying, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. Those texts in your Bible that go on forever. I read nine chapters of a genealogy in First Chronicles a couple of weeks ago. It was death. don't know about you, but I frequently want to skip that part of the Bible. Nine chapters of this son, this son, this son. They would go delve into those obscure texts. And they said, this is the meaning. Ah, because so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, our teaching is right. They used obscure texts, and they took them out of context. And what does Paul say? It is sheer guesswork and speculation. Now, why do I go on about this? The last some of you at the beginning of the point is this. We are in big trouble as the 21st century church. Because our staple diet, if I had to bet for most of us here this morning, is the daily devotional, right? And what does the daily devotional do? I was having lunch with a friend this week, and he explained it so well. It teaches you to see Scripture as a string of pearls, where you just kind of hop through Scripture, and you get nuggets of wisdom and encouragement for your day. Not so? That's what daily devotions do. Encourage you, they tell you a bit about Jesus, what the verse means. But what it trains the church to see Scripture as is isolated pearls of wisdom. And so when these false teachers rock up on the stage and say, my teaching is from the Word of God, and they just pick out these obscure meanings, applying them in weird ways, these obscure texts, we just go, great, this guy's got pearls of wisdom. Not so. Ah, but Scripture is not a string of pearls. It is a chain of thought. And when a writer writes a book, church, this is so important. He writes to a specific audience. 
with a specific purpose. And just like when you're writing that email to your boss and you're explaining your situation in the office of why this business proposal has to go through, you are reasoning it out. And you're hoping the boss is not going to start with warm regards. Oh, he likes me. Then he goes into the next part and he goes, oh, he wants to spend, he wants to spend five million of our budget, forget it. No, you're hoping that he's going to follow the chain of thought, not so? And it's my concern, it is my deep concern that we are having the wool pulled over our eyes because of our approach to Scripture. And some of us here are so faithful. I want to commend you for spending time with the Lord. But if we don't grapple with Scripture in its historical context, if we don't understand what this book was written for, why and for whom, and what the author is arguing, and if we don't have an understanding that Scripture is a composite whole, we'll have these scoundrels come in. And as you'll see at the end of this sermon, place heavy burdens. And they will prove, hey, this is from Scripture. And I want to say this morning, not everybody is set apart to study Scripture all day and every day. And I want to say, if you feel a bit insecure about your knowledge of Scripture, that's okay. But from this morning, do something about it. Pick up a study Bible like Matt Francis said, that ESV is excellent. Where it might not help you experience intimacy with God so much as helping you understand the context of how the Word is coming to you. And start to grow in your ability to grapple with the mega narrative, the big story of Scripture. Because about 70 years ago, in the evangelical church, the person sitting in the pew knew their Bible as well as the person preaching it. And as a good pastor, I want to say this morning, my job is to raise you up so that whoever stands here and preaches, you're able to weigh up their content first before anything else. The mark of a good preacher is this. The mark of a faithful eldership is this, is raising the ability of the flock to run away from the wolves. And we fail if we don't push you to grapple with the Word of God in a responsible, life-giving way. Now, what is the content, the second question, by which we assess? Well, it's important to know this, church. And it might seem like an outrageous claim in our day and age where everybody seems to question truth. I want to say, for the believer, the Christian, you can have every confidence that what is being presented in the Word of God is sound. And it will change your life when you begin to see that when the other voices of the contemporary pop teachers and culture begin to speak into what life is, what heaven is, what it means to live a good life, what it means to be right with God, when you believe that the truth received, given to the church, is the truth, it will change the way you approach it. And the, the early church, the first generation, knew what the Word of God was before the New Testament was finalized. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and the New Testament is not finished yet, but he is able to say to Timothy, tell those certain persons in verse 3 to stop teaching different doctrine. And the only way you know something is different, right, is if you have a template. Not so? The only way you know something's wrong is if you have what is right. And that is the profoundness of this gospel. And he says to Timothy in, in, in verse 6 of chapter 4, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. And so for the early church, truth was a reality. 
before the Word of God was finalized in its written form. And the way truth comes to the church should give us great confidence. What these false teachers were doing is they were just using their intellect, their guesswork, their imagination to produce their teaching. Paul called it speculation. He said it was vain discussion, cleverly devised myths. Ah, what does he say about the truth, the sound doctrine that Timothy is to uphold? He says this, it is the stewardship from God that is by faith. And as a preacher this morning, I'm staking my life on what I'm saying because of this. This revealed word of God was not produced by the church, was not produced by the men in the church. This word of God was given to the church, and all that I am doing is I am stewarding it. All that I'm doing is I'm presenting it to you this morning as received from heaven. And so you only steward and manage something that's not yours, right? You own your own stuff in your house, I hope. <laughs> if not, you might have a visit from the police. But a steward is somebody who has received something of great value. That's why there's a steward over it. It's not his or her own. And the mark of Christian ministry is stewarding the word of God so that we grow by it. And Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Wow. It didn't say delivered from the saints. It has come from heaven itself by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how did it come? Because this is how we assess what is right and wrong. Stick with me. If you, if you can stay with me, you get your doctorate, all right? <laughs> but this is what Jesus said. He asked his disciples a question. Peter, James, John, come around me. Yes, Jesus. Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, Jesus... Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a great teacher. And he says, in, 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 in Matthew 16, verse 15 to 18, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And listen to this in verse 70. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son of Simon Son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, that's the Greek word, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there's a great debate in the church over centuries of what the rock is. Because it could be two things. Is it the revelation given to Peter and the apostles from heaven, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Is that what the church builds its life on and breath and, and, and structure on? Or is it Petros, Peter, the apostle, upon these eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, of his life, death, and resurrection, what is the rock on which we base our entire truth and foundation? And I'll say to you, it's both this morning. It is this revelation from heaven that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it's this revelation that's in the hands 
of the first generation apostles. See, Petros is two ways. Revelation and first generation apostles. And I say this to you because of this. In Acts chapter 242, what the church devoted herself to was, first and foremost, the apostles' teaching. And friends, the reason why the Bible is a closed book this morning, and the reason why everything is weighed up on that rock, is because that revelation that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and actually all of Scripture is an unpacking of it. It is an unpacking of this awaiting of the Son of Glory, and now, after He's come, what it means for the world and for you. And that is Scripture, an unpacking of the centrality of Jesus Christ. And my friends, this morning, we need to know what we weigh up truth by is this. Does it align with this apostolic witness? With this. Because after the John the Apostle, who died of natural causes, 90 years old, finishing his book of Revelation and finishing his one, two, three John letters, that generation, the revelation of God in the hands of the first generation apostles, closed. And I wish there was more to that revelation this morning. There are some questions which we are asking that we don't have all the answers to that will be given to us on the other side of heaven. But this morning, church, we have to be fully, 100% committed to every single dot and comma of this apostolic witness. And you want to say, well, that might sound arrogant. Well, I want to say this. It is the way Jesus designed it. Christ said, this is it. As a believer, we say we are following Jesus. Jesus Christ said, that this revelation of himself to the world in the hands of the Holy Spirit and the first apostles is what we build the church on. And when that is clear, what we relate to and condone in this world is clear. Friends, that is why we do not partner with Mormonism. Mormonism came to a man, Joseph Smith, who had this angel called Moroni come to him, And he was told to reform the church, but he added to Scripture. When you look at Mormonism, it has the Book of Mormon attached to the Word of God. We do not accept any addition to this apostolic witness. We reject this. Secondly, we do not not accept any tampering with it. That's why we don't have fellowship with JWs. Because they, in their New World Translation, had to tamper with the text of the Word of God because it did not support their teaching. And when you move into no trinity, that Jesus is the archangel Michael, that the Holy Spirit is not a force in a person, that there's no existence of hell, that the soul is annihilated at death, these things we reject because Christ said it is the first apostles, the first generation witness of the apostles that we build the church on. And so for us this morning, I want to ask you, Sterling Baptist, Is your allegiance to that? Are you clear that a man and woman is weighed, that actually for the church, salvation is believing the testimony of the first generation apostles? You cannot be saved without it. How are you saved? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That was written by John the Apostle 
of Jesus Christ. And that is what separates us from heaven and hell. Is we stake our faith on what Christ staked his church on. The first generation of apostles. The word of God. Crystallized in the New and Old Testament. And I want to say this morning, the mark of every generation in the church is to rediscover for itself this first generation witness. And whenever you've had a man stand up against the established church like Athanasius, anybody ever heard of Athanasius? Amazing man. The entire church of the early Roman Empire said that Jesus was not co-divine with the Father. It was called the Arian Controversy. And Athanasius stood up and he says, that is wrong. And someone said to Athanasius, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And Athanasius said, well, then Athanasius is against the world. Because what did he do? He went back. He didn't discover anything new. He went back to that first apostolic witness and these great heroes of Luther against the giant Catholic church of the 16th century that said you are saved through works and indulgence. He discovered again for the church this amazing first generation witness of justification by faith. That faith plus nothing in Christ plus nothing is eternal life. Friends, these men rescued the church not by introducing something new but by going back to what was already there. Man, you had George Whitfield standing up against the Anglican church who had fallen into such cold morality that everything was just what you had to do, morals, morals, morals. And Whitfield rediscovered for the church the doctrine of regeneration that you must be born again, and it sent fire throughout Britain. You know that Wesley, there's a book on Wesley that said he so changed Britain that you could say there was a Britain before Wesley and after it. How did that happen? He went back to the first generation apostles. Friends, are you interested in the life and power of God's word addressing your life today? Because our responsibility is this. We have to go back to the apostles. And I want to say today, the mark of denominations dying, which happens all the time, Methodism, Baptist, Anglican, Presbyterian, you watch those denominations dying is because of this. Mark my words is they keep going back to the superstructure of the past instead of the foundation of the apostles. And so what it becomes to be a Methodist then is you have to follow John Wesley. No, John Wesley would say, don't follow me, follow Christ. And some of us have heritages of we are, we are Anglican and Baptist because of this and this. We are not Baptist or anything for any other reason than this. We come back and stand upon the apostolic witness. And friends, when the church learns that every generation has to go back to that, oh man, she will be so relevant. She'll build a superstructure that will pronounce Christ in a way that this generation needs to hear. But because denominations are dying as they're clinging on to the past, we do things because we've always done it this way. We lead church because we've always done it this way. My friends, the power and revival comes back from men and women who take seriously this first generation of apostolic witness. Now, I ask you again, are you staking your life on it? Because these men did. Gosh, I've got so much to say. Anyway, I'm going to end it off with this. The last question is why is content still so important for you and me today?
You see, the danger is this, and I'm so aware of it as I'm preaching, there's a fog that comes over our minds. And you go, oh, this is really rather abstract. It's not. And I want to close with these last few thoughts. Is the reason, here it is, the reason why content is still so important for you as me in 21st century Christianity is this, that false teaching always leads to bondage. I'll say it again. The reason why what you believe matters is it can either lead you into the life of the Spirit and abundance in Jesus or false teaching, bondage. And what does Paul say? These men were saying to the church in verse 3. Let's read together. These men forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Friends, what these men were doing is these false teachers, they were loading on bondage after bondage. And it came in this harshness to the flesh. They were teaching that if you really want to please God, no sex, because no marriage, and be careful what you eat. And for the young men in this room, praise God, marriage is permissible, all right? Luther says, fear drives a man to faith, sex drives a man to marriage. It's so true. And the bondage is this, is that if there was any affection for somebody sitting next to you, maybe you're a person here and you've got eyes for somebody in the church, that's good and natural. But even in this context, if you had feelings for the opposite sex or whatever sex, you were in trouble. That was sinful. Marriage, physical pleasure, sinful. Better be careful when you go to pick and pay, boy. Because what food you eat, you could be casting yourself out of heaven. Banting is, it's far worse than you. Yeah. You lay a heavy yoke on people who love carbs. I'm just saying. Church, the reality is this. What you believe plays out in who you are. And this is the crux of this whole sermon. Is many of us this morning are living in bondage because you have never embraced the truth. Paul says, Everything in life, creation, God said when he made it, is good. But what's going to make it good for you is you come under the word of God. It says it is to be enjoyed by those who believe and know the truth. That is the third umpire. That is the one that releases conscience is when you understand the truth. It is the truth that sets us free. And I want to say this morning, we've been talking about legalism of people saying don't get married and don't eat certain foods. I want to say this this morning, the bondage of legalism for somebody here who has never, ever felt acceptable to God. Because at the root is legalism in this teaching, is that your performance determines whether you are at peace with God. And you try so hard. Oh, don't say that. Oh, I missed my quiet time. Oh, I shouldn't have ever thought that thought. Oh, why am I feeling like this? Just heavy striving after striving after striving. And the Christian life, instead of being a gospel of freedom, is a gospel of bondage. 
I want to say this morning, if your sum total experience of the Christian church is failure and fear of rejection, friends, you are under false teaching. And it might not even have come from a physical person. It's from Satan himself. And as a man who has to fight this on a daily basis, I say to you this morning, what is at stake is the very life of your faith. And for some of us here this morning, you never have a clear conscience. You're always striving and you're performance-driven. You never have peace with God. You never have assurance of salvation. You never really know. If somebody had to say to you, are you going to heaven today? You never know. You, when you start to talk about whether you're going to heaven or not, you start talking about how well you've tried. Yeah. I hope so. It's false teaching. For you this morning. The truth that sets you free is this. Is that you are saved. Utterly. Without any thought to your performance. You're a Christian on the foundation of grace. And the thing that will trigger your love for God is not how well you're doing. You know what will trigger your love and joy in Jesus? Is knowing that freely you have received. Now freely you can give. What makes you cold and stingy in your love for God, and I'm speaking from personal experience, is this. The absence of grace. Because unconditional love can only be received by grace. And the love of God for you this morning is not based on your performance, it's given to you in your position in Christ. And so, as we take of the communion this morning, Jesus says, it's not what goes into the body, tasting and touching and all those things that make you clean before him. It's this inner cleansing of the heart, which comes by the blood of Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning to take communion in a new light. Will you take this cup that is the symbolism of his blood and the bread? And will you drink it with fresh confidence this morning? as a son and daughter of the living God. No matter what your conscience says this morning, I don't care what you did before you came to church this morning. I don't care what your life has been like. I want you to listen to the word of God. And the word of God says, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, his blood is enough for your forgiveness, not based on your performance, but on your position. And that position is secure. You can rejoice having come from the most grossest sin. I want to say it is a scandal. Until you see the scandal of the grace of God, you cannot drink with the fullness of joy and assurance. It is this amazing love that how can it be that Christ my God would die for me when we were great, when we were perfect, when we had it all together, when we were at our worst, when we were in our pit of sin, when we were in the total lostness, blindness, darkness, haters of God, haters of creation, totally separate from Him. The love of the Father found us if it was without performance, friends. Why are we going back to it? Because until our position is clear, and we know freely we have received the power and life 
that changes us into the likeness of Jesus. This behavior that is called to conform to the position won't come. It's those who wait on the Lord, resting in Him, not striving, not trying to be something that they're not. Waiting on the Lord, showing me their strength. Showing me their strength. So I'm going to ask in your own time, come forward, take the bread that's the body of Christ for you and the cup that's his blood shed for you and drink it as a son, drink it as a daughter forgiven. Come up when you're ready.